This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 18. Yeah, it's the old saying in property, the more problems you can find, the more money you can make. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, it's not rocket science. You can actually add some value very quickly in these industries. Welcome, commercial property community. How are you today? Thanks again for joining me. My name, of course, is Andrew Bean. I'll be your host today. And in today's show... Michael Philpot from Tourism Brokers joins me on the show again to share how the tourism sector is traveling 10 months into the pandemic. He also explains the ins and outs of investing in a caravan park and how to add value. We really go deep into how to identify underperforming caravan parks and how to be successful in this business. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. Go to www commercialpropertyshow.com.au Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. Returning to the show today is the guru and director of Tourism Brokers, Michael Philport. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. No worries, mate. You are very welcome. So, mate, last time we spoke was back in episode seven around May, and we were right in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic. Things weren't looking too good for the tourism sector back then. How are the conditions looking now? Look, things are improving. We're actually getting a number of sales through. We're seeing some businesses up 10 to 15 percent on 2019 figures. Some are even higher. Certainly what's going on in Queensland, Tasmania and Victoria is a bit depressing courtesy of the government's still keeping the borders closed. But anywhere that's opened up, tourism numbers are up, travel is good, figures are good. There's some areas in New South Wales where it's difficult to get accommodation, which is good. People are out there enjoying it, spending the money and helping the economy. Yeah, fantastic. So, mate, what do you think's been the biggest influence on the marketplace right now? Oh, look, COVID's still playing it and the politics of the Queensland government and the Victorian government primarily Tasmania, well, that's a standalone. That's basically an oversized retirement village, but it's quite unique in its own size. But when it comes to the influences, you've got the political, then you've got the international tourism or the lack thereof, and the inability for the Australian domestic market to actually travel. And Queensland's missing out by billions, and Victoria's missing out accordingly. We need those borders open. Yeah, definitely, mate. I actually thought it was going to be a bit more of a brighter report than that. I didn't realise that it was in such dire straits in Queensland. That's not good. 
some of the stuff that's inland and around the mining sectors, around the tourism areas is fine. The problem that you've got with the likes of the Gold Coast is that it's only got access to 30% of its market. The international market's out, Victoria's out, and Sydney's out, or New South Wales are out. So that means that the maximum that it's got available is just the internal stuff. And as a result, the tops that you've got on the Gold Coast is 30%. We're seeing a fair bit of bloodshed up in Cairns. Some of those occupancies up there are down around 8%. But some of the mining camps, some of the gas camps, some of the coal areas, they're 100% full. They've been doing major works and that's flowing through the economy and the likes of Emerald and Dolby and Chinchilla, those sorts of locations, which is really good for Queensland. But New South Wales is really the only area that's open and most of those locations are doing really well until you get up to the top end close to the Queensland border where there's a lack of traffic going through to Queensland and down the bottom end at Albury, Wodonga and certainly Wagga, those locations, where there's a lack of traffic coming between Sydney and Melbourne. But look, anything that's open, they're powering. It's just that we haven't got enough open. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, mate, what asset types are actually in demand, the ones that are open? There's some really good deals out there, and it always comes back from the buyer's perspective of the WIFM, what's in it for me. And investors are taking long-term views. The investment properties where tenants are in there operating them and there's leases in place, they're always popular. We're seeing those go through at anywhere from 7 through to 10% returns. And certainly with the interest rates at the moment, they're really attractive. By the time you throw in a bit of depreciation and other factors, normally they don't pay a great deal of tax for the first five or six years. So that allows them to pay back a bank with their borrowings. But generally it's the investments and then it's the land content that's driving it. Where you've got a high land content or a higher and better use, then people are identifying the value. Some of them are land banking because they recognise the value of land. But domestic tourism generally will come back and it'll come back strong. And there's a few people that are punting on that. But we saw a taste of it back in the GFC days where domestic tourism actually powered, caravan parks powered, and some of the, the motels and accommodation generally powered. The, the only thing that's holding it back, once again, comes back to the political will of some of the governments. So basically, it's everything in New South Wales is doing well because like obviously New South Wales is quite large and we're allowed to move around. Is that exactly what I'm hearing? Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure on caravan parks where people are wanting to actually have space around them and stay in the caravan parks. There's a lot of retirees or semi-retirees that are actually out in vans. There's been record numbers of sales when it comes to vans generally. And you've got the grey nomads that are going through. Before, there was a, a total restriction on people getting into Queensland. The likes of Moree was chock-a-block full as people were sitting out their time period. And then they'd come into Queensland from Moree. But um, now the western areas of New South Wales, Broken Hill, Burke, Cobar, those sorts of locations, it's incredibly hard to get accommodation. So some of the parks and the motels are actually full. And there's a lot of people getting out and about. And as you get closer to Sydney, well, then there's a lot of people that are travelling for weekends and trying to get out in the open space. And we're seeing that also reinforced with real estate generally. The demand for housing, the demand for blocks of land, the demand for farmlets has really gone through the roof. There's record number of sales that are happening over the internet where people are buying them based upon the photographs, sight unseen. And as soon as they're hitting the market, they're gone. So it's a hot residential and rural allotment market. 
but that's quite distinct to residential units, which are airspace. There's a, a bit of reluctance in the marketplace relative to the units, but when it comes to getting space and houses and land, and caravan parks got plenty of land, and some of the motels got plenty of land, they're quite popular. Is there a lot of stock available now for caravan parks and motels, or is it about the same as last year? Oh, look, it's about the same as last year. There's a few people sitting tight because the market has contracted a little bit because they're saying, well, there's issues relative to what's going on with banks. Some of the banks are still lending money, but they're just a little bit tighter than what they were normally. We're seeing that some of the brokers are having difficulty getting finance through, but the, the local branch managers are approving it based upon rapport and existing clients. If you've been in the industry and you've got experience, then the banks are quite happy to come in and back you. If you're new to the industry, then it comes back to the resumes. And with a lot of the applications for finance, the resumes are actually put up front before the rest of the documentation because they're just doing an assessment on the people and the skill set that they're offering. So what if you're an investor and you're buying it as an investment not to actually operate it? Yeah, if you're buying it as an investment, well, obviously it comes back to how the tenant's been affected by COVID and the debt to equity. We're seeing that there's a lot of mum and dad investors out there up to $3 million that are paying cash. Over $3 million, they're borrowing a little bit of money, but there's a lot of superannuation floating around and self-managed super funds are really driving it because they're getting the returns. You've only got to look at what you're getting in the bank, as I mentioned before, and if you're buying something with an 8% return. These things are triple nets where the tenant's responsible for the repairs, maintenance, outgoings, insurance, and all other costs. So the 8% return is a net return that's coming to the owner. And when you buy it, provided you get a depreciation allowance or you get a depreciation report done by a QS, then you'll get the benefit of a few hundred thousand dollars in depreciation. And obviously that allows you to offset your tax liability and reduce any debt or increase the returns to the owners. I love depreciation and I love using it because it means you pay less to the tax man and you end up with the asset. Yeah, there's no doubt that caravan parks are are highly lucrative and I'm personally quite interested in the sector itself to uh, be an owner one day. So mate, as an investor, can you explain how to value a caravan park? Is it as simple as applying a cap rate to the net income? That's one of the calculations that you put into the mix. The other one is how much vacant land has it got and what can you do with the vacant land and really it comes back to the location like if it's in the middle of nowhere and it's a remote location well then you're just going to be basing the decision on the existing business that's there and maintainable earnings which is you're going to receive those dollars on a regular basis going forward and then you capitalize them out in the way of returns We're seeing caravan park leases go for 22 to 26% returns. We're seeing investment properties that have got caravan parks but tenants in place. They're selling on 8% net returns, that sort of level. And freehold going concerns, depending upon the location and what they've got. You've got to remember that some of these caravan parks can be quite big and they can have up to 50 and 60 cabins So that's basically a large motel as well as a number of permanents and a number of tourism sites. So you've got a very well diversified business that's there with multiple streams of income. All of that combined will come back. And then if you've got something that's probably around a 12 to a 13% cap rate, 
that's one of the parts. But if you've got a heap of vacant land that you can put additional cabins and manufactured homes on, well, then you can pay a premium for that because you're going to pick up the development profit. The growth area is really manufactured home estates, which are going on to a lot of the caravan parks around. And you've got to remember that regardless of COVID and regardless of the economic conditions, Australia is going through a, a shift anyway, and there's a number of people hitting retirement, and we've got a massive wave of people that are coming through. So they're after places that they can live, and that's why they're buying the vans and the holidays, and that's why the caravan park industry is getting some significant benefits, because there's a lot of people with some very strong disposable income that helps, and it's good to see. Like The, the benefit for the, the economy is going to be quite strong going forward, but obviously we've got a changeover as those people sell their businesses and other people move into the businesses. But caravan yeah. parks are well positioned and it's all about the returns. It's just a matter of looking at them on a case-by-case basis. Right, okay, yeah, I agree. Um, so let me just make sure I understand. So if it's closer to the shore, like a, a nice beach area, you're going to apply a lower cap rate, obviously, which will make the property more valuable. Potentially, yes. The old adage of the coast is for show and the country's for dough is very relevant. And if you've got a, a young couple that haven't got access to a great deal of money, like we've got a caravan park at the moment for under a million dollars, and it's got a net on it, and this is a freehold property, in excess of 250000 So that's a freehold going concern business that brings in a 25% return. Well, wow. once, you, once you've done that and you've had the depreciation, there's probably close to a million dollars worth of depreciation. So no one's going to be paying tax on those funds for a number of years. And when you use the small business rollover provisions, when you sell it, you just roll that in so you don't pay capital gains tax and roll it into the next business and go bigger. That's the stepping stone for people getting along the coast. But the idea is that ultimately a lot of people want to get to the coast and there's a lot of people that want to be along there and they're popular on the coast because of people. People make money. The closer you are to people, the more chance of business that you've got, the safer the business, so the more money you're going to pay because it's low risk. So that property that you were speaking about, that's 25% net income. Is that yep. is That's not cash flow. You still have to obviously take out your mortgage. But other than that, all the outgoings are paid by the leaseholder. Well, that particular business is an owner operator. So there's no income in there in the way of salary for the owner. But all the rent, all the outgoings, the electricity, the phone, the car, everything basically that you do is a business expense. So you're talking pretty close to a net amount that you can pay back the bank, but all your living expenses are covered. So there's only two ways that you can pay back the bank. One is that you receive the funds and you pay the tax on it. The other one is that you receive the funds, use your depreciation allowance and delay that tax payment for capital gains tax purposes that we can deal with separately and then pay back the bank. But because you're dealing with small businesses, there's a a little section of the tax act that allows you to roll over that capital gain. And if you're in the industry long enough, it used to be, and now it's more than that, about $2 million per person. So $2 million for the wife, $2 million for the husband that you can organise to get tax-free as part of the provision into retirement if you've had a small business and you've rolled those concessions over a number of years. That's why it's important to employ people that know what they're doing, have the right structures in place, And that's where discussions like we're having today educate the marketplace because not many people are aware of the benefits that they can get out of it and how good this industry is.
It's all yeah. about service, and it's not rocket science. If you provide good service in this industry, you'll be very successful. Yeah, that's right. Mm. For the listeners, can you just explain the difference between freehold going concern and then buying a leasehold to a property? Yeah, well, a freehold going concern means that you own the business and the real estate componentry. If you're just buying the business, well, then you're actually leasing the freehold. And that rental is a cost um, similar to a repayment to the bank. You never own the real estate componentry, but it allows you to come into the business and get a higher return. So if you're looking at some of the motels that we sell, they'll have 40% returns on them. But some of the caravan parks, depending upon the location, they're normally in that 22 to 25% return for leases. But the freeholds aren't quite that high. But if you go remote locations, you'll end up with a, a 25 to 30% return. That means that if you've put $100,000 in, or if you've got a business worth $300,000 and it's got a 33% return, it's going to produce $100,000 income. And that income is after your rent, after all your operational costs, after your living expenses, after your car use and payments, and all the other, like your electricity, your phone, those sorts of things. The only thing that you've actually got to pay out of that is, depending upon the structure and how you work with your accountant, is the tax and the bank. So like, there's an opportunity for value add to buy a freehold going concern and then take over the business, improve the business and then sell off the leasehold to that and then just take a rental income. Absolutely. A number of people do that as a a method to retirement and they do it with motels and they do it with caravan parks where they get in there, they buy the whole lot, they build it up, they set it up and then they say that they want to retire or they might put a manager in there initially. But you've got to remember that these things have got a value to them. And the value is driven by the banks, but banks traditionally lend in a normal market, you would get 60 to 65% borrowings against the freehold componentry from the banks and 50% normally against the value of the business. In the current market, some of the banks aren't lending. The Commonwealth Bank's doing 50-50 on the commercial real estate componentry. But if you've got experience and other bits and pieces and you're low risk to the bank, then they will still lend you 50% against the business and a little bit higher against the freehold componentry. But you still need a fair bit of capital behind you, and that's why most people will buy a business first, get the equity in that, use the tax concessions, end up with a bundle of money and use the rollover provisions so that you can walk into the bank and say, well, okay, I bought this for $300,000 then. I've grown the business. It's now worth $500,000. In the meantime, I've paid back all my debt, which was originally $300,000. I've now got $500,000 in equity. Give me the money to buy a freehold or another business. That's basically the stepping stone that people go to. In a lot of the small businesses that we do, if someone's got access to $150,000, we can normally take them to something that's worth around $1.2 million tax-free or debt-free, rather, debt-free, Um, within that sort of eight to 10 year period. There's no way in the world that you can do that on wages, but you can using the system and using small business concessions. That's quite interesting that people will buy the leasehold first and then on sell that. Do you value that like a normal business off the cash flow? Yeah, you do. And because the banks are quite happy with them, they've got a reasonably good multiple with them. Like when you buy a corner store or you buy a takeaway shop, 
or something along those lines, you might be paying one times multiple earnings or it might be two times multiple earnings. And that's dictated by the return that you're receiving and the security that you've got. When you're getting into motels and caravan parks and traditional arrangements, it's typical that a lease is up to 25 years, which means that's the the security of tenure that you've got. Then you've got some other assets. So it's pretty safe for the banks to lend you the 50 to 60% that you require. And that goes for everyone. So that's why normally businesses we sell, we'd normally rotate them every three years or thereabouts. The majority of businesses or the operators are in there for three years and then they sell it and upgrade and go to the next one. And that's the majority of our sales. And then when they get some more capital behind them, then they get into the freeholds. It's rare that someone can come in and say, well, okay, I've got $1 million or $2 million clear of debt. I'm going to borrow some additional money from the bank and buy some freehold properties. Because some of these can start at a million dollars, but they can go up to 10 and 20, even 50, 100 million dollars in value. So you've got very significant industry and a very significant scope. So if you've bought a freehold and then you've built up a business, then how do you figure out how much you can rent it out for to an incoming business? Do you have to sell the business or could you just lease it to someone? You could lease it to someone, but effectively, when you sell the business, that's what you're doing. You're selling the business and you can either sell the business with the improvements or sell the business where the improvements stay with the property and the tenant comes in and just pays key money on a regular basis. But they will actually pay for that cash flow. It has a value. So unlike a corner store or a shop that's vacant, they've got to provide their own fit out. They've got to go in there, do bits and pieces, and that's where you normally don't pay key money to get into that premises. When it comes to these sorts of properties, there's an existing business and cash flow that's there. The banks will lend money for it. So it has a value before you start. And what you're doing is coming in saying, well, okay, at the moment I'm earning $100,000, but if I clean this up, make some minor improvements, put some paint around here, do some marketing, I'm strong on the internet, I can bring in some additional customers And rather than greet the owners at the front door in a messy T-shirt that was worn for a week, I've got a uniform on and it's a presentable presentation and the guests are enjoying it, then the business can quite easily double or triple in value. And that's because you've managed it properly and driven it to that level. Then that's got a value as well that you can then take to the bank. It's all about how much you earn, but there's some real potential for someone that's new to the industry coming in with a a bright-eyed new approach from someone that's been in the industry and been stagnant and making some good money. The fundamentals of the industry is if you do the basics well, you will get rewarded well because there's so many operators out there that don't necessarily do the basics. You haven't got to be outstanding, but you've got to care. You've got to have clean um, areas. You've got to have clean barbecues, clean presentation, and make it appealing for someone to be there. Yeah, I really like these types of assets. Like I, I see a lot of similarities in self-storage to caravan parks, whereas you can come in there and if you improve the management of the asset, it can in turn create huge value in the asset. Absolutely, but these are a little bit safer than self-storage. Self-storage, you've got a price point where you drive it too hard, then your competitor will come along and whack up a new self-storage because you've got sheds, you've got other bits and pieces that have got a finite value with them. The majority of motels and caravan parks are sold below replacement value 
and it's an ongoing. It's very rare, unless the market is incredibly hot, for these to be built from scratch and new. So the vast majority of dealings that we've got are on existing businesses. The ones that are new are in the mining areas. And obviously, for the first couple of years, they've got massive depreciation against them. But it comes back to the income that's there. But when it comes to storage sheds, because they're iron and locations, it's very easy to duplicate them. The same as corner stores, same as strip shops. But when it comes to motels and caravan parks, they're traditionally purpose-built. They've got the amenities there and they're quite hard to duplicate. Yeah, I totally agree with that, that self-storage can be oversupplied quite easily if you don't figure out your zoning around it to make sure you have what Warren Buffett calls a moat around your investment. And obviously, with the caravan parks, you're not just going to throw another caravan park next to a caravan park. It'd probably be a bit ridiculous. You'd probably try and buy that one and extend it. And you're not going to go into a market that already is saturated with caravan parks and think you could just do well doing that. You'd move a little bit down the street. Um, What kind of radius do you think a caravan park has to the people who actually go and use it? Is there any study on that? For demand and supply and... For demand and supply. Like with storage, I know it's very hyper-local. With caravan parks, it'd be obviously a lot greater, you know, the radius around it. Oh, it is a lot greater. But the magic number that you traditionally refer to is 70% within the industry. If you've got a 70% occupancy your prices are too low and it needs to go up in the way of prices. If you're hitting 70% occupancy on caravan parks and motels generally, then you need to look at expanding and putting additional properties into the marketplace or increasing the occupancy or putting your tariffs up. And if you can't expand, well, that's traditionally the point where you put your tariff up because you don't want to wear the things out. There's no point running the things at 100% occupancy and knocking it around, increasing your repairs and maintenance. But at 70%, that's a critical point where if you put the tariffs up, you'll actually make more money that flows through the system. Yeah, it's kind of like dynamic pricing. It's just based off the supply and demand in the marketplace for that current asset. Yeah, but certainly anywhere along the coast is fair game when it comes to caravan parks and the industry. And it's once again, it's all driven by people because people want to be along the coast. But when it comes to stuff that's inland, well, then it comes back to the road network and the convenience and, you know, the travel times. If you're putting in regional centres, you might have one at Parks, you might have one at Dubbo or in Queensland, you might have one on the Gold Coast and then you you go into Chinchilla or those sorts of locations. And if they're going to have a high occupancy because of mining and tourism, then how much tourism goes through, it comes back to the number of cars and travel along the road and travel distances and travel times because if you've got a caravan in tow yes you can stop and stay in the free load camps and the likes but you're still basically going to be traveling at 80 kilometers an hour and you're only going to be traveling for a maximum of six hours drive so that means that you can plot these things out fairly accurately like we do it on a regular basis there's a number of formulas and tests and and when it comes to valuing the caravan parks and valuing the accommodation sectors generally we do them on a daily basis as well i suppose the same can be said for storage sheds and other commercial real estate if you've got a specialist in that area they'll be able to do it very quickly within a couple of minutes and you'll end up with something that's quite accurate and something that's quite profitable that's what i was kind of getting at before where i know with storage it's extremely hyper local so you might be like 
three kilometer radius to people who are actually going to use that facility because it has to be close to their house usually. But with a caravan park, so you'd say it's about a six hour radius around the caravan park are the people that are going to be booking the caravan park. Yeah, so that'd be, so if you're doing 80 kilometers an hour, that's a maximum of 400 kilometers, isn't it? Basically, or thereabouts um, between points. But then it comes back to tourism locations, what the features are. That'll then dictate the average length of stay. If there's new developments going in for tourism-related properties, then they'll have a price point for accommodation. And you've got the caravan parks that are quite popular, but you look at the older ones, they might have single loading, as in fit one car, but now you need the camper vans, like the major camper vans, to go in there. Some of those things are worth $150,000, so they'll pay a premium to go into a double spot. And then it comes back to whether or not the amenities blocks are good enough and the services are good enough. But that applies to all the commercial stuff that you have a lot on your show. Yeah. If you do the basics well and you've got the systems in place and the structures in place, there's some really good money to be made out of along the way. That's where your show is adding quite good value in educating the market. Yeah, well, thanks for that, man. I really appreciate it. It's definitely, you know, the reason why we're doing it. A short break from the show to hear a message from my company, Develop a Life. At Develop a Life, we want to help you unlock your financial freedom. If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au. So, mate, so with a caravan park, is there any kind of rule of thumb about population in the surrounding areas of that 400k and then also how far away it is in relation to another caravan park? There's always variations to it. A lot of them have been purchased in recent times when they're in populated areas and converted to manufactured housing estates, which is where they lease the land from you. The caravan park owns the land, but they actually own the units or the house on the land. And those rentals are a lot cheaper than traditional units and houses. And they're government subsidised normally in the way of rental. So you've got a number of factors that come into play. Really, it comes back to if people are wanting to look at the industry, if they come in, they have a budget of X dollars, then we can say, well, okay, in the marketplace today, these are the options, these are the returns. If you're prepared to travel, this is the maximum we can get you. If you're not prepared to travel, this is the closest to that location that's available in the marketplace. And these are the benefits, but this is also how you're going to improve it and make some money along the way. Okay, so is there any kind of study done on the number of caravan parks that are in Australia alone? Yes, there is, and there's estimates around, but a lot of them are being purchased and converted to permanent residential. So that's starting to affect the availability of some of the facilities for the parks, because as soon as you convert them to permanent MHEs, which are traditionally permissible on caravan park sites, 
that means a lot of the tourism-related facilities are no longer there. So you've got some councils trying to put in free camping sites and other bits and pieces to attract tourists through. But generally, caravan parks are diminishing because of the land component that's there. There's still good opportunities in the marketplace, but generally a lot of the corporates are coming in and they're buying a number of them and converting them to residential housing, which is similar to the MHE style of accommodation in America. The percentage of the American market per population is up around 7 or 8%. I think Australia is running at about less than 1%. So if we compare ourselves to America, the Australian manufactured home estate market's got the ability to grow 700% before it's even getting close to an acceptable level. So you've got those supply and demand features that come into place in any market. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out the amount of caravan parks out there that people could potentially buy. I'm just trying to figure out how many there really is in Australia. Would you be able to put a number on it? Not readily, because it's not (laughs) something that we've focused on. But I dare say through our database and through our systems, because we'd have the majority of them in the system, certainly we'd have all of New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and Tassie and some of the ones up in the Territory. But unfortunately, we we don't bother about South Australia and Western Australia because unfortunately, traditionally, they're just too smaller markets for us. Could we be able to put a handle on it? But I just don't have those numbers immediately available. Fair enough. No worries. So South Australia and what was it? South Australia and Western Australia. And Western Australia. Those markets are too small. Is it just for your business or? Look, it's it's for our business. Like we're only small. You know, we haven't got the numbers and we're trying to recruit again now. Yep. But, you know, even when we're kicking goals, we only have a team of 30 people and there's just too much work and too much turnover for us in New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria primarily. That's the main business. That's where we get the majority of it from. Like occasionally we'll fly in and do deals in the Territory and service it. And the same with Tasmania because it's convenient. We do venture into South Australia rarely. But we just look at it and say, well, okay, we've got X available time. But unfortunately, with our licences, we're governed by the various states. So I think I have to pay out about 15000 a year in professional fees. But that gives me licences for to trade in Queensland that's separate to my licence for New South Wales, that's separate to my licence for Victoria, that's separate to my licence for Tasmania, that's separate to my licence for the Northern Territory. So um, there's only so many hours in a day that you can do these things. That's It's just from our business perspective more than anything else. Fair enough. I understand. So getting back to actually investing in a caravan park, could you give us some low-cost ways to add value and then also touch on the more higher-cost ways to add value to a caravan park? Well, the low-cost ways are basically get in there, clean them up, fix up the amenities block, fix up the barbecue area, mow the lawns, clean the garden areas, and uh, just very simple things like that in a lot of these parks will add instant value. The more expensive things are to whack in a a one-bedroom self-contained cabin. It might cost you $70,000 landed, but that might produce $40,000-odd a year in the way of income that's coming in. So they've got a very high payback but you've got to have the services and that that are there. But they're quite popular for people to get in there. And those things do work. There's a number of ways that you can do it. Borrow the absolute maximum. And then once you've borrowed the absolute maximum, then you work together. And we're quite happy to work on a business plan and go through the structure and that with you about repaying that debt as fast as you can 
to then grow the business and put in additional cabins and like there's organisations around that will allow you to lease the cabins and put them on site, but they charge a fairly hefty return in the way of interest or leasing arrangements for them. You're far better off to pay the extra money and put them in yourself. But that's beyond the scope of most people. Most people are having difficulties understanding how to run the business first. So we get them in, we train them, we work together with them to grow the business. And once they're in a position of comfort, then we start to actually suggest that they add additional cabins or buy out the neighbouring property, put additional houses out the back or convert areas to MHE areas, which means that you've then got to put in some sewer and water and other services for the people that are going to have that. It's a set process. Like we've got books on it. We've got the advice on it. We assist the valuers quite often in the industry in putting these things together. And we expect, you know, if you're putting a dollar in, you want more than a dollar back. So you make a commercial decision. Yeah, well, so you guys actually have operator manuals that you've created. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, we've got operator manuals. We've got introductions to the, the industry. We're in contact and deal with a number of professionals that actually do systemize these things on a regular basis. Then you've got teams of relief managers that are involved. It's a fully comprehensive industry that you're dealing with. It's not just a off the back of the truck, hey, how are you going type of operation. <laughs> it's you know, systemized. And because it's systemized, it's low risk. And that's why the banks lend good money to it because they recognise that it is a low-risk industry and they're helping it. And that's why it sort of evolves. If it was high risk, the banks just wouldn't be involved to the level that they are. You know, I love the I love the systems side of it. That definitely makes it a lot more safe and low risk. So well, how so do you... It's do you... very safe, but there's a lot of people out there that regardless of the systems that they've got and they've got access to, they don't follow them. Our industry is not a rocket science industry. If you get on well with people and you're organised, and you follow the systems that are in place, you will be successful. The ones that aren't successful, traditionally, unfortunately, people have a drinking problem occasionally, or they have a gambling problem occasionally, or they might have an affair with a cleaner occasionally. It's, It's built up within the industry, and it's just the way that it works. But in the industry, if you're coming in as a couple that are new to it, and you follow the systems, you will be successful. It's not rocket science. It's almost like a little franchise model. Yeah, but the franchise models are a little bit safer. Like if you go off and buy some of those franchises, and we've seen it over recent times of what Donut King and Wendy's and those sorts of operations, and even the coffee club, they don't necessarily get it right, but they've got costs that are there. Some of them are really good, some of them aren't. It's just a matter of getting with the right thing. But if you've got a property that's got existing systems in place, then you've got sworn valuations from the bank's you've got protections in place, you've got five years worth of trading history, you've got existing systems that are there and you're going to live on site so your overheads are covered and you've got existing forward bookings that are coming through, it's pretty bulletproof. Like We're not getting people in there to build new ones and say, well, okay, build a new one and just go off and run it. This is a case of, okay, someone turns up at the counter, this is how you book them in, this is the the booking system that you have, this is the length of stay but they're taking over existing systems and existing businesses. It's just a matter of getting outside of that mindset of wanting a weekly wage. This is working for yourself as opposed to working for wages. It's definitely a different mindset. So Hmm. can the listeners purchase the operator manuals you have? How does that work? Traditionally, we help them. We'll assist them with some of the information that's there, and we assist them with other bits and pieces. But 
generally there's organisations around that do consultancies will lend or will allow some of that information to go out and about because it's a bit of a quid pro quo. We add value to the industry on the basis that the industry deals with us. So if someone's wanting to buy something, well, then we'll try and help them establish the systems and whatnot to take that park on or document it. And we've got precedents for that. If someone's got an existing park and they want to go to the next level, well, then we can add some value along the way. But it's not something that we readily hand out via the email to every Tom, Dick and Harry under the sun because there's a fair bit of years of experience and detail that's gone into these things. Yeah, no doubt. So it's not something that we can purchase. It's more of a consultancy service you provide. Yeah, look, we'll give some of it away free of charge as a sign of good faith. But generally, it just depends on the size and depends on the amount of work and taking it to the right area. There's a lot of intellectual property and a lot of value that goes with these things. Oh, mate, no doubt. You know, that's the beauty of books and everything. It's just you're taking that person's years of knowledge and work that they've done in that industry and you're buying it and you're going to be able to read it in, you know, less than a couple of hours. It's amazing. Yeah. Look, we've got introductories to the industry that we can get out and about. There's no hassles. And we've got introductories that go through and explain these things. They're willy-nilly. But when it comes to actual case-by-cases on the parks, not all of them are the same, but most of them will actually, because these are existing businesses, most of them have got them there or got them there to a degree. So it's only a matter of tweaking them to actually make it a lot easier for people. But if they're organised generally, that means that when they do the accounts, they've got them structured and they've got them by the month. They're not just sitting in a drawer that might have 12 months worth of accounts in there. They, you know, Those sorts of simple structural things are the ones that actually add value. There's a lot of disorganised people that do quite well in the industry, but the ones that are more organised do a lot better and extremely well in the industry. It's just a matter of where you fit in. Yeah, so I'm actually looking for the people who are disorganised and, you know, don't take care of the garden and don't mow the lawns and I want to buy those ones and then I want to improve them through better management and actually taking care of the asset. Yeah, and they're around and you can identify it through, okay, what does that park generate? What tariff do they get for the sites? What amenities have they got in for the sites? How does it compete against other comparable parks around the area? How does it appear? Generally, when you go in there and if it's maintained and trimmed and very professional, you'll feel comfortable about staying there. If you go in there and it's overgrown with weeds, you've got to get through the cobwebs to get in the front door and it might take 10 or 15 minutes for someone to turn up at the front counter. Well, then that's a very good business to buy because you can turn it around instantly and normally double the income. Yeah, it's the old saying in property, the more problems you can find, the more money you can make. Absolutely. (laughs) The more problems you can fix, the more money you can make. Yeah, and that's why it's not rocket science. You can actually add some value very quickly in these industries. Yeah. You've got to remember that, you know, people do retire as well. And, you know, we're going through a change when it comes to businesses generally where we've got an ageing population and there was a demographer by the name of Bernard Salt that did a major study on it. And Australia is going through major changes. Well, the caravan park industry and the motel and tourism industry is no different to other industries. There's some really good businesses that are coming on the market because they don't have the kids there that want to take the businesses on. They want to retire and they want to move on. There's no other hidden reason as to why they're selling it. They're not selling lemons. They're selling good businesses. There's a lot more of them coming through. Like at the moment, it's tight because everyone's a little bit worried, but that was back in sort of March, April of this year. 
now things are happening again. We're seeing more listings coming through. We're seeing more people opening up, more business happening. And as a result, the number of sales and turnover that we're doing as a real estate office is increasing exponentially from where it was back in March. That's great. So how is technology affecting the industry? Is there anything big coming through? Are there big changes? Uh, No, because some some of the parks still don't offer internet services, for example. So if you put internet in, well, then that adds value. Some of the parks that we deal with are still running with manual books. So if you put a, a computer system in place with a, a booking system that allows access to the World Wide Web, that magical thing that actually contacts your customers, that'll, <laughs> add, that'll add some value. There's all sorts of opportunities out there, but this is very much still a hands-on operator business, and it's just doing things smarter. So what kind of operating systems is the industry norm? There's um, a series of commercial programs available that allow you to manage the businesses and allow you to identify that there's a vacancy on this site or a vacancy in this room and it's got the tariff and everything else preloaded. You do that in conjunction with the company and some of the the caravan parks will have these in place, some of them won't, but if they're not in place, well then there's a number of companies that we recommend and that's based upon easy manageable systems, but they will give you trials and that to implement and put them in place. But it's all about just systemising and trying to take away the pencil and rubber and old A1 size booklets that they have in some of the parks for manual bookings. Can you name a few of the operating systems that I've used, the general ones? You've got various organisations that do them. We've got inform- we can certainly share that information with them, but I, I don't actually have a lot of those at the tip of my tongue. There's Saturn, there's Fidelio, there's various other programs, there's Hiram, there's customised programs and park management organisations, and a lot of them are still coming in on a regular basis today. Like we had a company that came and saw us earlier in the week, and you know, given that today is only what Wednesday, it's only recently, but they're entering the market and they've bought out some software that's been operational in America that Australia hasn't seen yet, and it's all cloud-based. A lot of the technology these days allows you to run your bookings. You can run them in the office, but you can also do the bookings via your phone and do the bookings via your iPad anywhere in the country, the same as the security systems. You can have the security cameras in place in the office and look at them there, or you can have it loaded on your phone and check your caravan park or motel or other accommodation out remotely. That's the sort of basic systems that are not expensive that people are putting in place and we're suggesting people put in place so you can actually have a life. You can go down the street and have a cup of coffee and have a break or you can go up the end of the park and do some work. Those sorts of benefits are there. What about software and systems like keyless entry? Is there anything like that in the industry now? In the COVID situation, there's more and more emphasis on there and there's more emphasis on minimal customer contact and a lot of contactless contact. So there's software and programs and that that you can get that work on your credit card and you can use your credit card as your key. Or you've got an automatic check-in point at the front that will dispense the key or dispense the card. Or a lot of the, the park owners are still doing the deals and taking the credit card details over the phone, booking you in and paying for it via the, the credit cards on their iPad or their laptop and you turn up and lift the mat up and you've got a key under the mat or you've got a key at the front office 
once you put a code into the box, if they've got a boom gate, they'll normally text you the boom gate code to get into the park via the boom gate so that you've got no issues. There's various ways that these things are managed, but certainly people are going for more and more contactless systems. So is there an opportunity for like certain type parks, it wouldn't probably fit all of them, but certain types of parks to not require a manager at all? It can be done, but they're normally rare because you've got someone that's normally living on site and if a water system goes or a pipe goes or something happens at the pool or you've got obligations relative to the guests that are there, there's certainly a lot of motels that are quite intensive that don't have managers living on site, but they've got access via mobile phones and they come with the, the keyless entries. That is slowly starting to creep into the Garavan Park side. But because you're dealing with some fairly substantial properties and size, and they might have a series of units and some permanents there, traditionally an owner or a manager is available on site to assist with management. Okay, because I'm just thinking more like a scalability kind of thing, just from my own personal perspective, because I could see a really great opportunity because it is the norm for an an owner to be living on site. But what if you could flip that on its head so you could not require a manager there all the time and it would be more like a keyless, managerless operation and then you could just scale it so you keep on buying more and more parks and then you could have a whole portfolio of parks eventually. Absolutely, and that's possible. And with the technology these days, there's no reason why it can't happen. It's just a matter of applying it. But unfortunately, the industry hasn't reached that level of maturity as yet because uh, they haven't put the infrastructure in place and the systems in place to do that. When it comes to motels, they're a little bit more intensive So they've got far more concrete around there that doesn't need to be maintained and the rooms are closer. So they've got the security cameras in place. They've got the keyless entries in place. They've got the emergency number for someone to be contacted after hours if need be in place. It's really no different to someone having the house next door or the house in the complex, but they're organised. They've got the systems because you've still got to remember that Some people don't always want to pay for the accommodation that they're staying in and then they're travelling and they don't know the area. They still prefer that personal contact as well. So whether or not you go for an Accor or a budget style of accommodation or you go for a premium level, if you provide the services and it's big enough to have a manager or something on site is not a big cost in the overall context of things. Yeah, I can definitely see the opportunity there, and that really excites me. So, mate, if the international borders are shut for an extended period of time, and I'm talking like another year or two, and that forces Aussies to kind of holiday a lot more in our own backyard, what impact do you think that'll have on the tourism sector? Domestic tourism-wise, it's really good for parks, and it's really good for inland Australia. Internationally, the areas that will continue to suffer will be the likes of Cairns, Port Douglas, to a small extent, Noosa, Sydney, the Gold Coast, Melbourne, those sorts of locations. International tourism accounts for what, around 20% of the Gold Coast market, I suppose. But as you go up to the likes of Cairns, it's been quite prolific when it comes to international tourists flying in. And then in some of the properties in certainly Sydney and Melbourne around the CBD, a lot of those are geared up for the, the international tourists primarily so it'll be those sorts of markets that feel it 
But when it comes to caravan parks and country locations, in the current market, given that we don't have to necessarily go off and spend our billions of dollars that we traditionally help England, for example, and then the, the few billion dollars that we spend over in America and those sorts of locations, that money will come back into the country because Australia still is quite affluent and people still want a holiday. So there's great opportunities for us domestically to get in there, add some value, enjoy it, provide the services, and those other locations will reposition so that they're more competitive. When the international borders open, it'll be no different to what's going on with international sort of movements and people wanting to come into Australia. The pressure is going to be on the government to open up and because there's more people that are wanting to immigrate here and come here because of the fact that we are an island and we've dealt with corona so well. You know, we're miles ahead relative to the west of the world and this is going to be a strong growth opportunity for Australia going forward. But domestic tourism, it's strong and it'll continue to be strong. We've got a lot of people that are quite well off that are travelling around. But I'd certainly prefer to have a caravan park at the moment than a, a CBD high-rise dependent upon international tourists or students because, you know, the international tourists are one of the components, but you've got a lot of areas around that are dependent upon international students. And we're seeing a lot of the international universities go online. So they're providing those services. So the students no longer need to be around the universities or in the locations. So where you've got major universities, there will be a bit of a glut as they go through this correction relative to residential accommodation and general accommodation because of the universities going online. The people don't need to travel there. But when it comes to holidays and breaks, people are still wanting to get out to the, the country locations and caravan parks are coming into their own because people have still got a little bit of a phobia and it'll be interesting to see as we go past the coronavirus about being too close to people they want a bit of space around them and caravan parks traditionally provide more space than motels so if anything caravan parks are going to grow from strength to strength yeah it'll be interesting to see what the future holds for caravan parks and the whole commercial market in general Mate, it's been absolutely fantastic chatting with you. Where can the listeners go to find out more about your services? We're a commercial agency, so we've got a website, www.tourismbrokers.com.au. That's the main site that does the motels and the caravan parks. And then we've got another company that we own, which is www.mrsales.com.au, and they specialise in management rights. And we've got people sprinkled from Cairns down to Melbourne. And our main offices are at the Gold Coast and Sydney. But we've got offices in Newcastle, Wangaratta, Melbourne, Cairns, Port Douglas, Sunshine Coast, Noosa, sprinkled through. But our main administrative offices are in the Gold Coast and Sydney. Fantastic, mate. My guest today has been Michael Philpot. Cheers, buddy. Thank you. Take care. All the best. Bye. Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. 
So this week's Ripper resource is The E-Myth Revisited by Michael E. Gerber. If you are planning on starting a business, you have to read this book. It's all about how to structure your business and building an engine that you can actually step away from in time. And he also speaks about how possibly starting a business that is your passion may not be the best idea because it will take you away from actually doing that thing that you love doing because there's a lot of things that you need to do in the background to actually run a business that have nothing to do with your passion. So it's a great book. I suggest you read it if you're ever going to start a business. That's The E-Myth Revisited by Michael E. Gerber. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you would like to find us on Facebook, you can search for at Commercial Property Show or you can check us out on the World Wide Web, www.commercialpropertyshow.com.au. Thank you to my guest, Michael Philpot, and special mention to Kevin McLeod for the music. In the words of Grant Cardone, success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.